Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Adam Murphy and this is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. This week, is AI a threat to humanity? What's a panic attack? And why does being scared make your legs wobble? We are answering your questions about science, technology and medicine. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. So first up, let's meet our panel. To start with, we've got University of Cambridge AI specialist Beth Singler. So Beth, do you have anything about AI that you want to get off your chest? Any bones to pick? (laughs) Yeah, so I find it really fascinating that people quite regularly use uh, those capture devices through for internet security where you check the box to say, I'm not a robot. You know these? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's short for completely automated public Turing test. So obviously from Alan Turing, who set up this idea of how we choose, see whether something's AI or not. But what a lot of people don't know is that when you're filling in some of these forms or selecting on an image, what is an isn't a crossing on the road. You're actually educating algorithms better in their machine vision system. So you're actually, the humans are performing a service for the AI and doing these capture tests. So all these things have come around on pick the road signs. We're helping yeah. the cars learn. Yeah. The, the funniest one, I think, is when you have to pick out all the ones where it's Sarah Connor from the Terminator series <laughs> or not. So we're actually helping the AI identify Sarah Connor and find her. I mean, it, it's preparing for the future, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> Brilliant. And we also have fellow Naked Scientist and host of Naked Genetics, Phil Sansom. Hey, Phil, so what have you brought in? You've got something on the desk there for us. Yeah, I've brought some show and tell. I'm going to do some quick Foley work. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, I love it. This is a bag of coriander. And the reason I brought it in is because I don't know if you guys are aware, but for, for different people, supposedly, coriander tastes and smells very different. I've just got, I've got Beth and I've got Sam next to me. I'm just going to give you guys a sniff if that's all right. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I don't like coriander. It Does doesn't it... smell particularly nice to me. Smells great to me. Makes me think of a delicious curry. I wonder, Beth, does it smell like soap to you? No, it smells like dirt. <laughs> That's interesting, because some people say soap, some people say dirt, some people say delicious curry. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly much in the camp that it tastes like washing up liquid. Yeah, well, me too. I hate the stuff. Good thing I've brought it all back <laughs> in. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because that there was a study that took place in 2012 where they analysed around 15,000 people's whole genomes. And in this set of people, they'd had data which was like, do you, do you like coriander or do you not like coriander? And what they found is that there's a certain single base change on a certain chromosome that was really, really strongly linked with whether or not people like coriander. And that little base change is in a gene that codes for a smell receptor in your nose that detects a chemical called aldehydes. And aldehydes are part of what make coriander smell like coriander, but they're also in loads of detergent products and washing out liquids and also insects, hence dirt and cleaning products. Now, the caveat to this is that there's only a 10% of the variabilities down to the genes, but it is quite a cool thing to think that that can affect something at, at such a big level. And that's why for years I thought my wife was mad because she liked the taste of soap. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be something else. Oh, yeah, you could be. <laughs> so we've also got, also from the University of Cambridge, Sam Virtue here with us. So Sam, what do you want to bring to the table about physiology that you'd like to talk about? So uh, I'm going to actually uh, debunk a myth, and at least according to my local supermarket, it is Halloween tomorrow. So I thought I would bring in a bit of a macabre myth, which is about something that happens after we die, or more accurately, something that doesn't happen. So there's a long-standing myth that your fingernails and hair continue to grow even after you've died. This is just not true. 
Once you die, your heart stops, you stop pumping blood, and the cells that make the proteins that make up our, that make our hair and make our fingernails are also all dead. But this myth may have came about because another thing happens after we die, which is we dehydrate. So the fingernails and hair look longer because the rest of us is smaller, not because they're actually getting longer. So it's prunes as opposed to zombies going on. Indeed. Brilliant. And finally, Olivia Reams is here to chat anxiety and mental health with us. So you also have a myth that you'd like to bring to the table, don't you? I do, I do. So a lot of people think that, uh, you know, when they're feeling very anxious, and especially if they've had anxiety for a long time, or if they're worrying a lot, they think that it's just part of who they are. It's their personality trait. You know, they're just a born worrier or just extremely shy. But actually, it's not part of who you are. It's a diagnosable condition which can be treated. And that's really important to know because anxiety is one of the most common mental health problems in the world. One in 14 people are affected. Women are twice as likely to have anxiety as men and young adults are also most affected. And the thing is, anxiety, if you have it, it can lead to suicide, to depression, to substance abuse. But there is treatment and there are things that we can do to help ourselves to overcome it. So serious people don't have to just say they're just a worrier. There's there's help out there. Exactly, exactly. There you can, you know, put your worries out of your mind, especially if, you know, if you worry a lot, if you have excessive uncontrollable worries, which a lot of people with anxiety have. Thank you. Now, before we dive into the questions, for those of you at home, we've got a guess who quiz running all the way through the show. I'll be giving you clues throughout the hour. So if you think you have an idea what it is, tweet us at at Naked Scientist with your guesses. The first clue is who or what makes this sound. So that's one time normal speed and one time slowed down. So it is quite quick, but if you think you know what it might be, tweet at Naked Scientists. And don't worry, we're not going to leave you with that. We've got a couple more clues coming up later on in the show. Now then, let's jump right into the questions. And we'll start with this one for you, Beth. Seeing as you're here to talk artificial intelligence, let's talk. What is AI? Right. It's quite a slippery term and some people use it when actually what they're talking about is not necessarily artificial intelligence. And one of the ways to understand the term and where it comes from and what it means is to think about the history. And the term was first sort of coined and used at a particular conference in 1956 in Dartmouth College. About eight very, very intelligent people who've been working in computer sciences got together and decided there was this thing that they could create called artificial intelligence, where they could create machines that could do all the things that humans could do, basically, could sort of perceive things, understand things, make decisions, be broadly intelligent by their understanding of what intelligence could and should be. And since then, the term has really been applied wherever some machines seem to be doing something that's smart. Under that umbrella term, you do get things like machine vision systems, expert systems, robotics gets lumped in under AI as well. And a lot of the time when people point to something and say that's artificial intelligence, it might not actually be in the same category as those original thinkers were talking about. It's it's become something that's very applicable to lots of different places. At the very simplest level, it's the use of algorithmic systems to make deductions that then become part of the data set that then go back into the algorithmic system. So that kind of iterative process. And it can do some very spectacular things. So if you've been watching the news about uh, particular AI games systems like AlphaStar and AlphaGo from Google DeepMind, it can be very, very super intelligent in very narrow fields. So playing computer games particularly well because it's iteratively learned how to play computer games very well on this algorithmic process. What it can't necessarily do is decide it's going to stop playing the computer game. So it has that very narrow form of intelligence that isn't directly mappable onto human intelligence in the way that the original founders, those eight gentlemen in 1956, thought. And by the way, they thought they'd fix this whole problem of artificial intelligence in about two months over a summer of like a 10-man team. We'll just get it, we'll get it done. So now AI is something that has been applied to lots of different things, partly because of our conception of it from science fiction as well. So we're talking sort of our ideas of what it is and could be are very much influenced by sci-fi tales. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies now say that they're using artificial intelligence and they might not necessarily be using exactly the same thing. They might be doing advanced statistics or as one chief technology officer said, I'd just rather say we did maths and leave it there. But AI has this kind of glamour around it. So it, as I say, it's a very slippery term. and It's hard to kind of pin down to some people what it actually is. 
So your computer might be very good at doing video games, but it's not going to be able to say diagnose patients with a heart condition. Exactly. So there are there are AI systems that can do diagnostics in that way, look at images, machine vision imagery, and they can check that and make a diagnosis. But no, it can't it can't be doing a broad range of things at this stage, although that is the ultimate goal, artificial general intelligence for a lot of people. If the criteria for an AI is that it can't stop playing a video game, <laughs> then a lot of people out there might be AI, to me included. <laughs> True, yes. Um, so that's one of the interesting things, seeing the comparison between AI systems playing computer games and humans playing computer games. And some of the world's best games players are exactly those people who have played hours and hours of games against other players. But what AI can do exponentially better is play against itself millions and millions of times to improve. So that's, yeah, and again, that's a very narrow usage of AI. Um, Alpha Star can play StarCraft 2 fantastically well, but they discovered, you know, initially it was beating humans, but it, that was when it was capable of seeing the whole map. Once it could see the map as a human sees a map, you know, bit by bit through the fog of war, it lost to a human player so that you know these the situations are also kind of set up for ai to to show off what they can do as well brilliant thank you very much and now we're moving over to you phil we've gotten something in from the forum from paul and he wants to know if you can analyze your dna at home is that something you can do you see i've been having to think about this one and it's an it's a tricky one obviously you can get all these you know direct to consumer i guess you call them uh, dna testing kits there's, there's actually a whole suite of them at this point. And you can send off a bit of blood or something and get back your results. And that's that's sort of from home, right? That's about 100 bucks. I think they're, they're currently going for now, $100. And you can get details of uh, your heritage and also a health screen. And I think the key to answering this question actually is in the word analyze, right? Analyzing DNA is... Very, very tricky. It's it's a whole field. And when you get your results back from Ancestry or 23andMe or whatever, they've done a quote-unquote analysis for you. And the results of that analysis need interpretation to actually make sense. For example, with the stuff like your heritage, it might say you're 7% Irish. Cool, great. What does that mean? What it actually means is that you share 7% of that heritage in common with Irish people today. It doesn't mean 7% of your ancestors were Irish, if that makes sense. So they're they're comparing it to the current DNA profile across the world. If someone says they're, oh yeah, I'm 7% Irish, "Mm, are you really? Uh, I'd hope I'm a little more than 7% Irish. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I couldn't tell. (laughs) But uh, when it comes to the analysis part, there's so many caveats when it comes to genetics. And even this coriander thing I was just telling you about, that one single base pair difference, that was only responsible for 10% of the variance. And if you don't have like that kind of analysis there in front of you, then you haven't really treated the DNA as it should be treated as just one piece of a, a huge puzzle. The other part of the question is, can you buy the huge DNA, uh, DNA sequencing machines? Uh, and yes, and they cost about 20 grand. So yeah, just stick one on your kitchen top. Be fine. Yeah, just sell your car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Easy. Easy. <laughs> Well, thanks very much. The home technology DNA kit is only (laughs) 20 grand away. Now, moving on to you, Olivia, we've got this question in about anxiety from Dee. What kind of anxieties are there? So can you pick that one apart from us? Yeah, so there are uh, different types of anxiety disorders, but the most important thing that we need to distinguish is what is normal anxiety from what is an anxiety disorder, because you hear this word so much, you know, people are talking about anxiety so much, but there is a difference between normal and abnormal anxiety. So normal anxiety is just, a you know, a human emotion that we all have when we're in stressful situations. It helps us to deal with challenges and to overcome obstacles. So, for example, if you're out in the woods and you encounter a wild animal, you're going to start feeling anxious and this rush going through you. So that's normal anxiety or, you know, the deadlines that you have at work. But if you take this normal anxiety to the extreme and especially when it arises in situations which don't pose a real threat, then that's when you might have an anxiety disorder. There are different types. One of the most common anxiety disorders is generalized anxiety disorder. And this one is marked by, you know, you have this excessive uncontrollable worry about 
anything that is going on in your life. You can worry about very small things to major matters, anything really. The worries can keep you up at night. You might feel restless, irritable. You might find it hard to concentrate. And it can be very impairing and disabling for some people. There are other anxiety disorders as well. This is just one of them. How do we distinguish between what is normal and what isn't? Because normal is a varying baseline for different people. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for some people, they're so anxious that they find it hard to leave their house. They find that they need to quit their job because of all of this anxiety that they're feeling. And they might not know why they're feeling like they're about to have a heart attack, you know, for no reason. Or they start sweating in social situations. When they're talking to other people, they feel like they can't hold it together. When they feel this distress, then you know, some people go to the doctor for that and the doctor can diagnose you according to this manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And this manual has got all of the symptoms of each disorder there and the doctor uses that and other uh, questionnaires to see if you meet criteria for one of these disorders and then you can get treatment for that. Thank you very much, Olivia. And... Speaking of being nervous, Sam, we've had this question in from you on Twitter from at PEJW7. They have a six-year-old son and when they were scared by a sudden ambulance siren, they asked, why do your legs go wobbly when you're scared? Isn't that the worst possible time for that to be happening? So this is quite a nice question to follow on from the one Olivia just answered, because what we're talking about here is the sensible physiological responses that we have to something that frightens us. And so you may have heard of the fight or flight response. Well, actually, there's a third component to that, which seems to have got lost in general usage, which is the fight, flight or freeze response. And so we can think about this when you're presented with a threat, your body can respond in different ways. So one of the ways it can do, and this will happen subconsciously, you're probably not going to be making this decision, is you could decide, whilst this is a threat, I reckon I can defeat it. And your body pumps out hormones to make you better able to fight and you will attack it. Equally, you may look at the threat and think, whilst this is a big, scary threat, I can probably run away from it and you will run away. But the third form is that you may freeze because there is a chance if you freeze and it's better than moving that the predator or the threat may not see you and you might get away from it. And interestingly, the wobbly legs is probably a manifestation of this freezing response because you don't actually want to give yourself away so your body can just freeze entirely and you don't even then have conscious control to move. And it's interesting that Size is a very important part of how you perceive threat, and children are small, so they're much more likely to have the freezing response to a threat, which would manifest in a slightly less extreme form than wobbly legs. But the truth is, there's nothing actually wrong with your legs. They're perfectly able to work. It's your brain telling them how to behave. Why is freezing useful? What What's going on there that would be beneficial? So... If we think about something really small, like a mouse, it, and it's being threatened by something like a bird of prey, it has absolutely no chance of fighting it because it's about 50 times smaller and it's essentially going to lose against a load of talons and beaks. It can't run away because the bird can dive at 100 miles an hour and catch it. But if it stays really still when it hears the bird, there is a chance the bird might not see it. So that's how it can evolve. Brilliant. Sam, thank you very much. Naked Genetics is back. You're a mutant. I strongly disagree. It's a labor of love, I'm sure. He would have had his mind blown. We have brand new episodes coming each month, starting 14th of August with Mendel's Trick, a trip back through time to the garden where it all began. He is the person whose ideas led to the founding of the science of genetics. The story of how one man took 30 years to become the figurehead for a brand new type of science. Find us on nakedscientist.com slash genetics or search for Naked Genetics wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the genetics of freckles, why you might sneeze a lot and getting silly with artificial intelligence. Now, here's the next part of our Guess Who game that we've got running throughout the show. First, we heard a noise it makes. Take another listen. And the next one, if that isn't quite enough for you, is there's two versions of this animal. One you find in Asia and the other one you find in the Americas. Anybody got any clue? 
Yeah, the second clues confuse me because the first noise is definitely me as soon as I wake up. <laughs> is it some sort of turkey or goose? It could be. We'll have to see. <laughs> There'll be more clues coming up throughout the show. Now, Beth, you just piped up there, so we'll go back to you. And okay. we've talked about what AI is, but Mariana asks us: Is AI a threat to humanity? So, is AI a threat? Okay, there's three ways broadly in which AI could be a threat to humanity. And personally, I think that they sort of run on a spectrum from more to less likely. So let's start with a really like less likely, in my opinion, version of how AI could be a threat to humanity. And that's the classic robopocalypse, where if you've if watched Terminator films or science fiction, where AI gains consciousness in some way, seeks to survive and decides that humanity is the greatest threat and it should wipe us out, usually using nuclear weapons or Arnold Schwarzenegger. This I find a little unconvincing. I, I am a huge science fiction fan and uh, I do enjoy those sort of apocalyptic scenarios and I'd like to think I would survive more than a day in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, but it's probably unlikely. I'm not very fast at running and I don't have many skills. But that, to my mind, as I say, is probably the least likely scenario, but that's one that people are concerned about. And some of my work, again, talking about anxiety, looking at people's comments online about how they're anxious about artificial intelligence. And I think, unfortunately, that sort of scenario being unlikely is a bit of a distraction from some of the scenarios that are more likely. So moving along the spectrum of likelihood, the second most likely one is not so much a case of hugely intelligent, conscious AI that destroys us all, but not so smart artificial intelligence employed in ways in which we cannot predict how it's going to behave in response to commands we give it. So people like Nick Bostrom worry about things like paperclip maximizers. If you set out a really super powerful, capable artificial intelligence to make paperclips, but it didn't have the common sense of of most humans who say, well, you mainly want two or three paperclips, maybe it'll turn all of the universe and everything in it into paperclips. Now, again, I think that's a slightly unlikely scenario. It is a, more of a thought experiment, but we, we could have unintentional consequences of basically stupid artificial intelligence that doesn't really have the kind of common sense and sort of social context that we have as human beings. So that I'd put that as like the middle scenario. And then what I think is the most likely scenario is even more stupidity, but human stupidity using artificial intelligence in ways that will be detrimental to human existence. And we already see this in algorithmic bias, where systems that we're implementing and trusting rather more than we should use data that is already biased by our own human biases and has repercussions for people's livelihoods and existences. So that examples of this at the moment, parole systems in America using databases of previous convictions and recidivism to decide who should be given parole and who shouldn't. And the, the data is very clear. If you're a person from an ethnic minority, the AI will decide you're more likely to commit a crime again, even if your existing crimes are lesser than someone who's Caucasian white. So we are <laughs> instilling into our AI systems our own human biases, and these will have effects on people's lives. So it's it's the same old story it's always been. We're going to stupid ourselves out of existence. <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah, I mean, I caveat all of this with my biggest concern is not robo-apocalypse, it's climate change. But, you know, this is something in our near-term future we will see impacts of people trusting machines to make decisions that humans perhaps should be making. And overall, how likely do you think these scenarios are? Oh, well, the, the algorithmic bias already exists. That's here. That's now. So 100% likely. Um, paperclip maximizer, AI being told to do something it doesn't completely understand. Yeah, that's that's reasonably likely, especially if we allow AI to be in charge of weapon systems in ways that people are talking about doing now. There could be accidents in that way. And the kind of robo-apocalypse uprising of conscious machines. I'm not sure about that one. That's the one I'm most agnostic about, because I think if, if something develops super intelligence in the way that people talk about, it's more like to be not that bothered with humans and just go off to explore the universe, which is far more interesting than us little ants anyway. So less fun action movie, more horrifying bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, Sam? So I think when you mention things like the paperclip maximizer, people think about this as being a physical manifestation of it turning the whole world into paperclips. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on what could happen if such an AI system was to be set loose, say, in the financial markets or a situation like yes, that. Yes, yes. Because the entire global finance system collapsing would probably result in something approximating an apocalypse. Yeah, so it, the paperclip maximizer is a thought experiment. Obviously, it's a little more dramatic to get people's attention 
attention to think about the consequences. But basically what it comes down to is what we call value alignment. We want to make sure any artificial intelligence system aligns with our values. Now you get into a whole complex conversation about what those values are and who gets to decide. But at the very least, we want to make sure that humans aren't impacted detrimentally. If you roll out AI that has actually already happened in financial systems, what are the values that are being maximised for? We've had crashes specifically because algorithmic decisions have been made based on a set of values that don't maximise for humanity. They maximise for making financial decisions. So absolutely, we're already in a stage where technology like this is being used and we have to decide what we want that technology to do before it's being used. But it moves very, very quickly. Brilliant, Beth. Thank you very much for that. Now we're going to jump back into the gene zone with you, Phil, where we've been asked, (laughs) what's the genetics of freckles? Now I'm more freckled than man at this point, so I'm vested interest in this. Welcome to the gene zone. (laughs) Population currently five. Yay. Adam, you're actually not as freckly as... Well, well, I've just seen your arms. Yeah, I mean, during the summer, I turn into a human giraffe. (laughs) Actually can confirm that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I looked into it. Genetically, it's actually, (laughs) as all these things are, not not clear-cut. So there you go. Freckles are little spots where your melanin is getting produced a lot, a lot. And your melanin is, of course, your pigment that makes your skin or your hair darker. And the gene that's responsible in this case is one called MC1R. And that's what controls the protein that goes on the cells that make melanin, the melanocytes. And the protein is what responds to the UV sunlight coming in, goes, ah, I've got to protect the skin, and then creates this melanin, absorbs all the UV, stops you getting damaged to your skin, all sorts of nasty stuff. Now, when humans, as a big group, left Africa, we didn't need all that melanin all across our bodies as much because the sunlight and the UV was less strong. That means in terms of evolution, there's less pressure to have the version of the MCR1 gene that makes lots of melanin all over your body. When that selection relaxes like that, you get different variants of the gene popping up. So now there's all sorts of different what you call alleles, different versions of that MC1R gene. Here's the caveat. As usual, some versions are responsible for freckles. We don't really know why, which ones. It's a few that are like linked to it. But then there's cases of people in Japan who don't have any of those versions and have freckles anyway that are linked to a different gene. So, again, a complex picture. But we think a large part of it is this MC1R gene. We just don't know why they appear in little patches. Stupid science not being clear cut. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell them. And yeah, yeah t- get, get on that. Get them to sort it. So does it make you better at dealing with sun or less good at dealing with sun? Uh, Supposedly in those spots, uh, better. Okay, brilliant. There's the other thing as well, just quickly, which is that it's also linked to red hair, which is uh, the MC1R gene, rather, is linked to red hair. If you have two copies of a certain allele of the gene, you'll have red hair. But if you have one copy of that allele you'll get freckles. So that's a really weird, interesting case where the two are linked, and it's one allele. The dominant trait on that allele is freckles, because it'll happen even if you only have one copy of it. But the recessive trait is red hair, which is super strange, and also going on a lot in Ireland. Yeah, it it does. There's a lot there, all right. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Phil? The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. This week, I'm joined by a panel of experts ready to take on your science questions. We have with us AI aficionado Beth Singler, gene genius and naked scientist Phil Sansom, mental health expert Olivia Reams and physiology fanatic Sam Virtue. And we have a question for you at home. We've got a game of Guess Who running all the way throughout the show. So first we heard a noise about something going on. Let's see if we can hear it again. And we know there's two versions of this animal bouncing around. Some are in Asia, some are in the Americas. Third clue is, they're spotty, but you might not notice it at first glance. Any ideas from the panel? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that, is, that is what we want to hear. It's a tricky one. <laughs> well, stay tuned and we've got your final clue coming up later on. Now... 
Let's take a break from the questions and put a quiz to our panellists. And if you want to play at home, please do. So we'll split you up into two teams. Phil and Beth, your team one. And Sam and Olivia, your team two. So round one, question one. What kind of animal was named Scaptia beyonciae after the singer based on certain follicle similarities? Was it a horsefly, a cat or a crustacean? Follicle similarities. Follicle similarities. I pronounced the word similarities. <laughs> That's bizarre. I feel like ha- having a horsefly named after Beyonce is a bit insulting. I don't think anyone would do that. There's, but it's unlikely that anyone's discovered a new cat. Like a, a, a wild cat well, out maybe. somewhere, somewhere hmm. in the... What was the third option? It was a crustacean. Do crustaceans have follicles? <laughs> what do you think? I, I don't know. I don't know. So what do you think, A, B, or C? I want to go cat. Okay, I'll bend to your decision, cat. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, we'll go with cat. I'm afraid it is a rare species of horsefly that's found, in, <laughs> that's found in Queensland, Australia. It was named after the American singer in January. Scientist Brian Lessard says it was the unique, dense, golden hairs on the fly's <laughs> abdomen that led me to name this fly in honour of the performer. So She knows more about her abdomen than most people. Uh, we'd be worried. <laughs> but, <laughs> but instead, we will move on and we will go to question two for Sam and Olivia. What kind of long extinct animal is named Cephophorus Terry Pratchetty after the author Terry Pratchett? Is it a pteranodon, an ancient rodent, or some kind of prehistoric turtle? What do you think, Olivia? Do you, I think, if I remember the Discworld books, and my wife's read them all, I haven't read them, the whole world is on a turtle. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a turtle. What do you think? Yeah, let's go with that answer. Yeah. We'll that <laughs> Don't know what else to say. I think I would go with that. Yes, and you are completely correct in your oh, reasoning, nice Sam. One. In the Discworld Terry Pratchett novels, the world is suspended on the backs of four elephants which sit on the top of a great turtle called a uh, Great Atuan. Frustratingly, Beth knew that one. I knew that one. <laughs> Big Terry Pratchett fan. <laughs> but we'll give, you, we'll give you a chance to come back now. So we're at 0-1. We're at mm-hmm. But okay. round two, question three, and we are moving into space. So despite Saturn having a radius of nearly 70,000 kilometres... The rings are only 100 metre thick at their thinnest. True or false? Could this be one of those where the actual answer is they're even thinner? Oh, I know. Second guessing. I don't know. Well, you have to answer this one. Oh, I, I do. Okay. That's, um, that's, that's good teamwork. Yes, it's all on me this and time. And never help. Uh, I'm going to go with true. True. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid you should listen to Phil there. I was being I exactly... I last time. Yeah. I, I, I was being exactly that brand of sneaky. Oh. The, the rings of Saturn at their thinnest are only 10 metres thick. Okay. Oh, so, well, um, I got it, even got it right. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, we're, we're two down, unfortunately. We, we will move on to question four for uh, team two. And we'll say a black hole that is 10 times heavier than the Earth is about the size of a bowling ball. True or false? I would be tempted to say false, but I'm not sure. What do you think? I mean... I don't know. I mean, my suspicion is it would be even smaller than bowling balls. So I'm going to go with your answer as well, Olivia. Hmm. Let's go false. Okay, you're going false. <laughs> no, it is about that. It is about the size of a bowling ball. A five Earth mass black hole would be about the size of an orange. So really, really small, but not quite as small as you were thinking. Right. So you have you have room now. We're only at. We're only at 1-0. <laughs> so back to Phil and Beth. What are there more of? Trees on Earth or stars in the Milky Way? Whoa, good question. Yeah. Is this like pre or post humans? Kind of cut down quite a few. Okay, stars in the Milky Way, that must be like tens of thousands. I bet there's more trees than that. But we're, t- we're working together on this one because we each ended up I don't know, I don't know. Uh... No, you choose. You pick. Oh, I'm no. <laughs> Great okay. teamwork over here. <laughs> I wonder if you have to blame him again. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, trees on Earth. More trees on Earth. More trees on Earth? Yay! Yeah, there are quite a bit more than tens of thousands of stars. There's about 250 billion stars yeah, did, in the Milky Way. I didn't think that was quite right, the tens of thousands. But I was still but right. Logic is still right because <laughs> yeah. there are about three trillion trees. On Earth, you're joking. Yeah, that, well, that's what the research says. So it's 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 one all. It all comes down to this final question. So Olivia and Sam, what are older, trees or sharks? 
That's an interesting question. I, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon, Olivia? Um, trees or sharks? Let's see. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> trees, <laughs> trees generally don't make sharks, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> let's just say um, trees. Yeah, I would go sharks, but yeah? I reckon. I, I don't know. I don't do want to get it wrong. <laughs> no, well, one of us is going to be. Oh, we're gonna, I'm going to need an answer. Oh, oh. What should we do? Go with your answer. Okay, trees. Trees. No, <laughs> I don't like the sound oh. of that. <laughs> no, sharks are older by about 200 million years. The oldest sharks emerged before the trees did. Darn those sharks! I know, mean, mean <laughs> sharks. But now that means <gasps> tiebreak. Yeah. It's one off. Yeah. Oh, this could this could get interesting and violent. So here's our tiebreaker question. The title of tallest dog ever was given to Zeus the Great Dane in 2014. To the nearest centimetre, how tall was he from ground to shoulder? We'll go with team one. Team one gets to answer first. Well, well, dang. Now do you have an answer? <laughs> no. Uh, in centimetres. Yes. Where do you think it came up to on a, a person? Like shoulder height on a. Yeah, I feel, I feel maybe? like if it was the tallest. Tall, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. Shoulder height on a bloke, maybe like five foot is. I, don't oh, know, I can't convert this into centimeters. No, that's the other problem. Oh no, we're, we're <laughs> experts here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is really not where my degrees are in. So we're going to um, need a number <laughs> apparently thrown out at random. I I have currently thrown out one hundred seventy, but okay, it's your turn to no, answer. No, no, no. We'll go. You have a number. Time to get it wrong. One hundred and seventy. All right, Sam and Olivia, what do you think? I think 170 is a very big dog indeed. <laughs> I think it's going to be less than that. All right, we'll say we'll say uh, I don't know, 160 centimeters. 160 centimeters is closer. Aww. Yeah, so it is team two win our tiebreak. It is still a very big dog because Zeus was 112 centimeters, <laughs> which is about. <laughs> I think you might have thought the dog was standing, like, <laughs> no. on someone's shoulder. Se- really... Several dogs on the dog. <laughs> yeah. I really did good with my 10-metre Saturn one, and then I've got every number wrong by yeah. so much. Sam and Olivia, congratulations for winning, and Yay. to you at home, congratulations if you got any of those right. And now we will move back onto the questions, and I would say a lot of people are curious about this one from Katie, Olivia. Hi. I'd like to know, what actually is a panic attack, and why do they happen? A panic attack essentially is this sudden burst of intense anxiety that you feel coursing through your body. It peaks within minutes and you don't know what is happening with you. You might feel like you're going mad, losing control or about to have a heart attack. You might also have uh, symptoms like sweating. You might feel faint. You might have heart palpitations. You might find it hard to breathe and it might feel like you're choking. So it's something very difficult to deal with. And the more that these panic attacks happen to you, so let's say, for example, that you're on the bus and the first panic attack happened to you on the bus. Next time you might feel more scared to go on a bus again or using public transportation because what if you will again get a panic attack on a bus. You know, the more these happen to you, sort of start avoiding places in which these panic attacks occurred. And then you also start to worry, well, if I go out in public and if I have a panic attack happening to me, then is there anybody that's going to be able to help me? So it might limit you from going outside. And this intense fear that might develop the more often that these panic attacks happen. So fear of, you know, what's going to happen to me once? a panic attack arises. Where am I going to get help? The fact that this can kind of limit the places that you go to and can make you want to stay inside the home, this can lead to agoraphobia. So it's it's something really, really tricky and really difficult to deal with. And, you know, the second part of the question, what causes it? So a lot of times a panic attack isn't caused by anything. It can just arise out of the blue for absolutely no reason. But sometimes certain events or situations can trigger a panic attack. So for example, let's say you're about to have a stressful meeting at work, you might have this panic attack coming on to you because you've already kind of got this stress going on in your body. So then the anxiety can just course within your your body within minutes and all of these symptoms can take hold and manifest in a panic attack. Olivia, thank you very much for that one. And now, Sam, we've gotten this one in for you, which is 
why do people usually sneeze multiple times in a row and not just once? So a bit of a subject change, but why might that happen? I know I certainly can't sneeze just once. Okay, so there are a few theories about it, but to sort of think about it, we need to think, what are we doing when we're sneezing? And so what happens when we're sneezing and why we sneeze is because there is something that is got into our nose that's irritating our nose. It's irritating something called the nasal mucosa. And this triggers the release of a chemical called histamine and that signals to nerves and that initiates the sneeze reflex. And what we're trying to do is expel this thing that shouldn't be in our airways out of our airways. And so if it's something that's actually irritating us, like an allergen or something, we may have to sneeze repeatedly to actually get it out of the nose and stop it irritating us. And the interesting thing is that some people who may sneeze two or three times in a row, other people may actually end up in these huge sneezing fits of 10, 15 sneezes in a row. And it may be, and this seems seems a bit of a cruel way of phrasing it, they may be weak sneezers. But this doesn't actually mean that they're physically weak, but actually not everything's properly lined up, so they don't actually manage to expel the allergens as well as a strong sneezer. It's also notable because this is more an allergen-based thing when we have something like a cold, which I have at the moment, we tend to sneeze less frequently and we don't generally tend to have the bursts as frequently with a cold, which actually is pretty good for the viruses because it means you can sneeze once in this room and as I currently have a cold, I can then walk outside and sneeze over a load of other people and infect them as well. So keep your sneezes to a minimum or at least to one place. Yep. Can how strong you are uh, of a sneezer change as you get older? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question, but there does seem to be some sort of anecdotal evidence that older people do seem to have more sneezing fits. But I don't know if this is just a media thing or if this is a really true, but it'd be quite interesting to know. It's interesting. I feel a bit bad for saying this on the radio, but my dad, yeah. as he's got older, has increased the number of sneezes he does in a row. And it used to be two, and then it went to three, now it's like four. So I feel like it's just going to keep going up in number. Exponentially going up. Yeah, soon it'll be like 100 sneezes. (laughs) Well, we'll see what happens when he reaches 100. (laughs) Now, now continuing the lean down into silly territory, Beth, we've talked a lot about powerful and scary AI, but what about this question we've gotten in from Suzanne? Are any silly things being done with AI? Are any silly things being done? Yeah, I think I think the silliest area for artificial intelligence is usually in robotics, where you get a physical form that can be doing a task that might be inherently silly. I mean, that's debatable what's silly or not silly, but I think it's really interesting how many spaces robots are being introduced to that they aren't utterly necessary in. So I just saw a story about a robot golf caddy. So it can use it can use its uh, systems, its machine vision to follow you around and make suggestions on which golf club, I mean, the, you know, what's wrong with a human caddy. Uh, and golfing might be intrinsically silly in itself. But I think examples like that, where you get a sort of a restaurant full of robots, there's a few of those around. There's a, a robot hotel I went to in Tokyo. If you if you heard about this at all, uh, you may not already know this, but the uh, concierge, when you come to sign in the robot there is a dinosaur a velociraptor in a waistcoat and a hat and that's that's fairly silly that's my new favorite hotel i love (laughs) it but actually one of the interesting things about the silliest examples of ai is how often they aren't actually ai so in talking to the people at the the hotel often the reactions the robot is doing to kids and so forth and scaring them is someone in the back room with a button pressing it every time a kid gets close and and likewise some of the silliest examples of ai generated text where someone online says look i fed an artificial intelligence machine learning system a hundred hours of olive garden adverts and this is what came out and you read it and it's like this is absurd this is silly but it, it makes coherent sense still while being silly this is just written by a human who wants to parody ai that really pulls the rug out from under Sorry. the dreams I had. Most common uses of AI people know about have humans in the loop at some point still kind of writing the stuff that's really difficult to write or reacting to things that are difficult to react to. Brilliant. Beth, thank you very much. It's time for the fourth and final of our Guess Who Clues. So first, let's get a reminder of the noise this thing makes. We said there's more than one version, some in America, some in Asia. They're spotty, but you might not notice it at first glance. And the final clue is they're very, very, very close to the leopards and the jaguars you might see at the zoo. Any ideas from the panel? Is it an ocelot? No, closer again Mm. to a leopard and a jaguar. It is in fact 
a panther. So a panther is just a leopard or a jaguar that has, as Phil was saying, far too much melanin and comes out as black. So that, that is a panther. That panther does not sound healthy. It, that's apparently how panthers sound. Maybe none of them are healthy. Maybe it was a sick panther. It could have been. Sad cat. But we will now end with our final batch of questions. Now, Phil, we've gotten this puzzling question in for you, which is how can we encode all the instructions in our DNA with just four molecules? It's a good question. Because there really are only four molecules at the most fundamental level. They're the four nucleotides. And between those four, obviously billions of those four, but that makes up all life as we know it. Now, four doesn't seem like that many. But to be honest, it's actually two more than all computers use, all the stuff that Beth here has been talking about, which is just ones and zeros, right? That's only two uh, components of your code. So actually, four especially when you consider like how many of them there are, maybe, that, maybe that's all right to have like such a small set of fundamental units. Now, there's another question here, which is why, why four? Why not two? Why not six? Uh, why not five or three, for example? That's still up in the air. But there's an interesting theory that came out a couple decades ago in a research paper, which relates to something called a Grover search. Uh, now, a Grover search is uh, a mathematical concept that uses quantum mechanics to determine a way to search a given set of options for one that you're looking for. With this Grover search that uses the quantum effects, you can search through a number of options in fewer steps than if you weren't using quantum mechanics. Now, the reason this is relevant to DNA is if you're doing a one-step Grover search, then the optimum number of things to search between is four. If you're doing a three-step Grover search, the optimum number of things to search between is 20. Now, that's kind of weird because there's three nucleotides and those nucleotides code for amino acids. And there's actually 20 amino acids. So in this paper that came out a couple decades ago, someone was like, hmm, interesting. Oh, spooky. Spooky. The numbers are the same. Perhaps when these molecules or, or these things that whatever are searching through nucleotides to find the right one, or searching through amino acids to find the right one, maybe they're using this Grover search with these quantum effects. And that's the reason that these numbers 4 and 20 exist in nature. Not definite science, but could be cool. Look out for that one. I will keep you posted on the naked (laughs) side. (laughs) Brilliant, Phil. Thank you very much. And we will move to you, Olivia. And we've gotten this question in, which is, how do we treat anxiety and how can we cure it? So which treatments work best and how how do cures work? There are a number of things that you can do if you have anxiety. A lot of times people are given um, medication. And although it can help in some instances, many times people relapse or symptoms come back and you're just where you started from. There's also cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been shown to be very effective. It essentially changes your thinking patterns and it teaches you new ways of looking at life, of coping with things. So it's extremely helpful of dealing with anxiety. At the University of Cambridge, I actually conducted a study looking at how you can cope with it. This study showed that people who had faced extreme circumstances, who had been through hardships, if these people had certain coping mechanisms, they didn't have anxiety. But people exposed to the exact same hardships and stressors without these coping mechanisms had high levels of anxiety. One of them, I will just mention one of them, it's feeling like you're in control of your life. People who feel like they're more in control of their lives have better mental health. And research says that if you feel like you're lacking in control in life, then you should engage in experiences that give you greater control. And basically, you know, what do I mean by this? And a lot of times people have trouble making, um, especially if you have anxiety, making decisions, uh, getting started on things. Procrastination plays a big part into this. And uh, I will mention one other coping mechanism. It's not based on my study, but a lot of people like this one as well. And it is called wait to worry. It is practical and very easy to use. Next time when you have a worry, 
Instead of worrying about that thing then and there, postpone the worry to a later time, to a worry period. So let's say you pick every day at four o'clock, I'm going to worry for 10 or 15 minutes. And the reason that this is so effective is that our thoughts actually decay if we don't feed them with energy. And when you come to your worry period later on in the day, you see that whatever you were so bothered about initially, it doesn't cause you as much anxiety when you get to it later. So wait to worry. Try it out. And as for a cure, I definitely do think that it's possible to overcome anxiety. It's just a matter of, you know, you hear these coping strategies, but actually applying them on a daily basis. Brilliant. Thank you for that. I will try having a worry o'clock. Now, let's finish this show, Sam, with a question to you that we got in from James. Hi, Naked Scientists. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. We all know that cats can see better than us, but what do they actually see? Is it like a bright sunny day or is it more like at dusk? Thanks. So what's going on? What's in a cat's eyes, briefly? Okay, so first of all, um, cats can see better than us in some ways, but in other ways, they're not so good at seeing as us. Because what has happened with cat vision is it's evolved to let them do two really major things. The first is to hunt really effectively, and the second is to see in the dark, because that's like when they like to go out and hunt. So actually, if you have a cat on a warm, sunny day, they'll have a much more limited color palette than us, so they won't see as many hues and as many different types of color. They're better at seeing in the sort of the blue spectrum. They wouldn't be able to see red things quite so well, so their vision will be quite different. They're also unable to see as well in the distance as us. So, for example, they would have what's classed as 20-100 or 20-200 vision, which means that a cat would have to be at 20 meters from something to see it as well as we could see it from 200 meters away. So, in Australia there, say you're looking out at something like the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you would the cat would not be able to see it from being stood on the shore of the bay. Cat vision isn't necessarily better than ours and what they can see is more limited during the day but at night they come alive they have far better vision at night and they have a special membrane called the tapetum lucidum which is the reflective membrane that gives cats eyes that wonderful property of reflecting light when it's shone on them and this is all designed to make as much of the low light levels we have at night available to the cat so it can see better and then that enables it then to see its prey. And in the case of my cats, that's quite a lot of mice that get brought in in the morning. In my cat, it tends to run more into running into the nearest wall. And we must leave it there. Thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions. And thanks to our panel, Beth Singler, Phil Sansom, Sam Virtue and Olivia Reams. Join us next week where we will be talking accessibility and computers. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Adam Murphy and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.